If you or someone you know is facing mental health and or substance use disorders, please use the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. This is a confidential 24-hour-a-day, 365-day-a-year helpline available in both English and Spanish. Welcome back, everybody, to the Taking Care of Business podcast. This is your host, Dan Trottencheck, along with... Renee Shagnon. <laughs> and uh, we're there. It, it takes two of us this week. And, and again, like we've told you before, we're going to start getting a little bit more uh, diversity of hosts in these podcasts. <laughs> so this week, uh, you're lucky enough to get one of our co-hosted episodes with both myself and Renee. But it's a big topic that we're going to be talking about today. And today's guest is someone that you may have heard of. Uh, who's really certainly built a reputation uh, within the industry as a very progressive retailer. But we're going to talk to her about that. But also we're going to talk to her about a lot of other stuff that she's doing in and around our bu her business. And today's guest is Gina Schaefer. And Gina is the founder and CEO of now it's over a dozen hardware stores in the heart of our nation, Washington, D.C. and Baltimore area. And she's a member of the Ace Hardware Cooperative. And Gina leads this multi-million dollar business and employs more than 250 people. And she is dedicated to maintaining a strong corporate culture that's really at the heart of a lot of what she does with her business. And she's actually begun to transfer ownership of her business through an ESOP to her teammates. And, and one of her biggest passions that, that ties back into her business and ties into being in that DC metro uh, market is developing urban markets and supporting small businesses and helping other women succeed within the hardware industry. So she's really trying to make an impact beyond just running a very progressive chains of, chain of stores. And she is tirelessly focused on these national efforts to increase the federal minimum wage and to pass legislation to strengthen antitrust and monopoly laws, really targeting helping small business. So Gina is kind of like that hero retailer that we always talk about at NHPA, about the retailer that not only runs a really good business, but gets involved in supporting their communities and really helping that small business effort. So we're really excited to talk to Gina today. And after this word from our sponsor, we're going to be right back and dive into our conversation with Gina Schaefer. Live Oak Bank offers financing for hardware stores nationwide for refinance, acquisitions, expansion, and commercial real estate. Live Oak will support you with customized loan products focused on your success. Our hardware store loan experts embrace a creative approach to solving problems and surpassing goals. We understand the nuances of your business model and will help you avoid costly mistakes. Let's craft a loan solution that will help you thrive. Learn more at liveoakbank.com slash hardware dash stores. Hey, Gina, welcome to the Taking Care of Business podcast. Um, thank you for being on. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, I, in the past you were on Renee's podcast, Tell Me More. Um, and so hopefully a lot of our listeners will know about you, but as a first time guest on the Taking Care of Business podcast, would you mind starting out and just sharing a little bit about yourself, talking a little bit about a few cool hardware stores and just familiarize our re uh, readers and, and listeners uh, with who you are and what you're doing in Washington? Of course. Yeah. I started my uh, first location, opened my first Ace Hardware store in 
a neighborhood called Logan Circle in 2003. And my husband joined me about three months after I opened. So we've built the business together over the last, gosh, almost 20 years. Wow. Yeah. Hard to believe. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. it is. Time flies. And and so how many stores do you have now? We actually have 12 right now. Um, There's always a couple more in the works. You never know what we've got up our sleeve, but there's 12, um, about 300 teammates in the summer. Usually uh, we flex up to about 50, a 50 extra um, for our seasonal work. So, yeah. And, and tell me about a few cool hardware stores, just where that came from. But that's kind of a cool moniker. You know, it's awesome when things just sort of stick on accident. It's like you can't give yourself a nickname. But I was writing my email signature after we opened our third location. And I didn't want to say I was the owner of and then name the three stores. All of our stores are named after the neighborhoods. And so all 12 of our stores have a different name, which you can imagine becomes a little yeah. bit of a branding challenge. And the third store is called Tenleytown Ace Hardware, which is a mouthful. And I thought it sounded a little cocky to say, I'm the owner of, and then list these three stores. So I said a few cool <laughs> hardware stores. And by the time we got to 12, a few had stuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's a, a bit more than a few, but I guess you can call yes. them a few until you get uh, sure. until, until you get to 100 or so. But, right. but in addition to being the owner of a few cool hardware stores and running this operation, you're going to have another title to add to your resume, and that's author. Yeah, um, it is. Yeah, that's, that's super exciting. And right before our podcast, uh, it looks like you just got the first copy of the book. And the book you wrote is called, and I want to make sure I get this right, Recovery Hardware, a nuts and bolts story about building a business, restoring a community, and renovating lives. And that's going to be coming out in just a couple weeks here. T- tell us a little bit about what motivated you to write this book and a little bit of a kind of a preview about what, what's in the book. So, uh, Dan, this is really my first interview about the book, so I'm getting chills because it's so exciting to talk about it. Um, uh, Yeah, thank you for that. So when we opened Logan Hardware, uh, the neighborhood had been destroyed by the riots in the 60s when Martin Luther King was assassinated. So Logan Circle was um, had so much potential and historically beautiful, but had been dormant for several decades. And so when we opened here, we opened in the midst of a, of a, a renaissance in this neighborhood, if you will. People were moving back. The boards were coming off the windows. And um, it was becoming the place that it, it truly had been before and, and even better in a lot of regards. So that's what we opened up into. And then down the street was this wonderful recovery clinic, uh, the Whitman Walker Clinic, um, oh. that was funded in, in, in the past in part by Elizabeth Taylor. And so it was, very, it was oh. a very special part of the neighborhood that had, that had maintained its presence here. And several of our first teammates came from the recovery program at Whitman Walker. And so oh. um, fast forward, I think it was probably 14 years later, after we opened, one of those guys said, you know, the community calls this place recovery hardware. And <laughs> I did not know that. It was, it was um, you know, one of those moments where you gasp and you can't actually yeah. relive it to, its, to what it really was because it was so meaningful. And I thought, gosh, what a great name for a book. I didn't want to really talk about building a hardware business. I wanted to yeah. talk about building a community. And that name really embodied what we've tried to do. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so kind of building off of that, Gina, um, when you um, when you first opened the store and you started working with people and bringing people on who were in this world and were kind of working on their recovery, um, d- did you have any idea the the role your business would play in and leading to something like that? That's amazing being being considered the recovery hardware store for for people who were going through those changes and looking for that second chance, but. W- w- would you have, if you could have looked back, do you think you could have ever predicted that? 
No, not at all. And it's funny, there's so many touchstones in my life when I look back to things that I did. So for example, when I went to college, uh, Wittenberg was the fifth university in the country to mandate community service for graduation. So we had to do community service for our diploma. And uh, and I, I'm, I bring that up because I think that I had a, a history of community involvement and doing things um, it, to help others, for lack of a better phrase. And so um, I think I can look back and see those markers in my life. But no, I mean, I was building a business. I was a tech reject. You know, I'd been laid off four times, which is why I started the hardware business. So I went from, you know, software to hardware, which to me felt like going from something very intangible to something tangible. So in that regard, maybe I thought I could do something to help the community. But, you know, when you're a new entrepreneur and you're trying to figure out what 20,000 items in your hardware store do um, and how to make paint and keys, you're not thinking really about what you're doing in the greater landscape of your neighborhood. Well, you know, it's this is such a an important topic and and not not just and I want to talk to you a little bit more deeper about the topic of the book but it's something that we preach all the time I mean so many so often when you hear headlines about businesses and obviously you know it's it's usually not small business that's making the headlines but it's it, it's more about businesses that take from the communities and businesses that find ways to um, uh, to take advantage in one way or another. Yep. Uh, and, and we always preach here, one of the things that, that people like Renee or myself feel good about coming to work is that we're helping the other side of that. And there are so many stories of small businesses, and, and you're certainly one of the, should be one of the big headlines among those stories that, that go that extra mile to try and help their communities in ways that, that you don't often see from a lot of those larger corporations. And, and it's one of the things that when we, when I'm sitting next to someone on the plane and we talk about what we're doing for a living, you know, we, we emphasize how, you know, it's really small businesses that help build their communities and are doing things like this. Um, but, you know, let, let's just talk for a second about the topic of the book and and, and where you guys started of, of really taking a chance in some ways of saying, hey, we're going to be this business that that as Renee put it, you know, you're giving people kind of a second chance and really trying to help them on their road to recovery. What would you tell other retailers or business owners uh, about that, that don't really understand that? How do you even broach that topic of of trying to help people? Because a lot of people would say, ah, you know, I have a hard enough time running my business. I want to kind of steer clear of the extra, you know, drama. How do you even kind of dive into considering something like that? Well, you know, it was a happy accident because our first uh, our first employees, our first applicants were members of that community that okay. were going to the recovery center. So we didn't we didn't seek out a specific population to hire or not hire. I would say um, over the years, and I've heard so many of the arguments um, we have to as we have to as business owners think about our communities, the pockets of applicants that we have. Think about you know I'm so tired of hearing people talk about the Great Resignation and how they can't find right. employees. When we as a, as a society tend to discount entire populations of potential applicants. And so I think there's that. Right. I also think if um, historically, I, and I, I tell the story in the book, one of my, one, the very first employee that stole from us was a middle class 26 year old from Michigan whose family owned a small business. Um, he was a college graduate, he was articulate, he didn't have a criminal past. No one would have hired him and thought 
oh my gosh, he might steal from me. But the second I start telling someone that I hired someone from a recovery program or a returning citizen, they immediately think the negative. Whereas, you know, it was the first guy that I had to fire. And so it was a really good lesson for me early on to, to just level the playing field. Everybody can do good. Everyone can do bad. You know, I say in the book, uh, don't judge everyone by the best or worst thing they've ever done. Um, and we have to think about that holistically. Often if I'm, you know, if I'm giving a speech and I'm talking to an audience about uh, the topic of the book, or perhaps it's to a group of HR folks and, and I'm mentioning some of our, our team, um, we, we talk about like sort of dispelling the myths, getting rid of the stereotypes, um, placing, uh, matching the, the job description with the person that you need and what, who's in your community. Um, I mean, I'm babbling a little bit, but I, I think we, we tend to be very short-sighted about the, the people that can do the job that we need them to do. Absolutely. Totally. So um, do you mind, maybe, do you have any stories from the book that you're willing to, to share with us as like a teaser or something that might, you know, maybe someone will hear and want to hear more of these stories? Yeah, of course. So I'll, I'll just, the one of the opening stories is about my, um, probably the first person we hired, uh, Tommy was a returning citizen. He had been in prison for 17 years and we had decided that we were going to ban the box on our job application before it was a legal requirement to not ask if someone had a felony background. Um, And Tommy uh, showed up for 12 years. He worked on our team until he decided to go do something else. And he worked in the nuts and bolts department. And the one thing that I think Tommy really taught me is to to think about the lifetime value of a customer. So somebody would come in and they would go upstairs and upstairs. It was a second, that was two story store. And Tommy worked in the nuts and bolts department on the second floor. And I would send customers up there and he could, he would talk your ear off. He didn't care if you were a plumber, a mom, a, you know, a guy in a business suit, an attorney, like he, he wanted to make friends with everyone who walked through the door. And sometimes they were up there for 20 minutes and he would have like a $2 sale. Well, you know, I mean, we have to get to our average ticket and we have to pay a lot of rent. That customer was a customer for life the minute they met Tommy. So they would meet him in the nuts and bolts department. They had no idea that he had spent 17 years in prison. They didn't care by the time they came down because they thought that he was just such a, you know, a great guy that was, that was super um, cheerful. And so it was one of my very first lessons um, from an employee, from an, from a very unlikely background. Yeah. And I know that, you know, that kind of dovetails with something that you talked about kind of in discussing the promotions for your book is finding these kind of surprising customer service skills that might really have kind of been born from unconventional backgrounds that stuff that you wouldn't normally see on a resume. Is this story of Tommy kind of indicative of that? Are there other kind of areas where you've found that that have come from these unconventional backgrounds? Yeah. I mean, I think it's super indicative. One, I mean, we don't know everyone's backstory. So I might have something that would yeah. scare people in my past. I don't, but I could, right? But you <laughs> wouldn't true. assume that or you might not assume that or you, you wouldn't you wouldn't know it, but I could give you really great customer service. And so why does one have to um, negate the other? One of my, um, one of our, my favorite managers for, you know, they're all my favorite. And so I should stop saying yeah. that, but I really do. <laughs> I mean, we do really have a great relationship. He worked with us for 10 years and he had been, um, he had been uh, on house arrest for two years for selling drugs. And I, I've often sort of quipped that his skill set as a drug dealer translated perfectly to someone oh. in retail. He knew how to count, save, count and save money and buy inventory with it. He wasn't <laughs> 
stealing it, yeah. throwing it away or hiding it because he knew that he couldn't sell more things if he didn't have inventory. And so he was good at that. He was good at dealing with difficult customers. It's very stereotypical to say the average person looking for a drug dealer is not happy or pleasant, but he had to deal with a whole host of, you know, emotions yeah. and um, reactions from his original customers. Um, he also was used to working very difficult hours because his previous customer base didn't want him to only be working nine to five. And so the it, it's, you know, we sort of joke about it, but his, that skill set translated perfectly Translates. into yeah. running a store with the emotions that you deal with, with your team, with your customers, with the community, with the odd, odd, difficult hours sometimes you have with the number of items and the, you know, the money that exchanges hands. Um, that is usually fairly shocking and you could see yeah. the light bulbs go off in the audience. Even the two of you like yeah. shaking your head like, oh, yeah, I never thought about that. <laughs> well, but but it's really taking, you know, this sort of knowledge or life experience that, that was, you know, certainly societally, you know, rooted in a very negative right. uh, thing. But but really taking it and saying, hey, listen. You still have this knowledge base and you have these life experiences. Let's turn it and focus it in a positive direction. And, and, and it's such a really simple thing to say, hey, why would you've developed some skills and you have, you know, you're very gifted in some areas. But now isn't that really part of, of finding a, a productive, positive role for you in society? is taking what you know and what you do well and finding ways to focus it on the positive. Absolutely. You know, those that skill set, by the way, is the exact same skill set that you could attribute um, to a mother returning to the workforce after being out sure. raising her children, dealing with difficult personalities, <laughs> you know, the ups and downs of a child crying, being up and down at all crazy, you know, crazy hours of the day and night. I mean, they're very similar. Um, they're very similar skill sets. So... I'd love, you know, continuing on this topic, like, why do you think for you, this is such an important topic? Um, and what has, what has it been like being involved in supporting those um, who are in recovery? Like, what, what is that connection for you? Because it seems like from what I'm hearing, and I mean, you wrote a book about it, it's a very personal thing. And, and so I'd love to hear kind of a little bit more of that from you. Well, I mean, first of all, it's very personal because if I look back on the last 19 years, there are so many points in time where someone has taught me something that came from the recovery community. And I yeah. feel like I, I owe them that voice. I had an, an assistant, a very dear assistant who passed away two years ago. And um, John said, if you don't talk about us, who will? Um, he had been a, an IV drug user for a long time. And um, it... I never thought these stories were mine. I, I didn't want to talk about anybody's past. And um, he sort of gave me permission to do that because we get a chance to celebrate, not hide. And, and yeah. um, that, I mean, I'm just like getting choked up just thinking about it, but I think that's the point. So yeah. I often also tell my audiences to close their eyes and think about a main street that means something to them. And if you, if you do this exercise and, I, and I'm walking you through it, you're going to use all of your senses. What are you smelling when you're on that main street? What kind of sounds are you hearing? How do you feel? And I think that's why small businesses are so important. I'm guessing if you just closed your eyes, you did not think of a chain or a big box. An Applebee's or, and a Home Depot. What else no, would you want? right? I mean, there was no strip mall that popped into your mind. It was yeah. some place that's special to you. And some business was on that street probably that was special or 
you know, a library that was special to you or a local bakery. Um, I think we need to continue to tell these stories from the loudest microphone possible so that consumers remember and our communities remember that, that small businesses are what's making us interesting. Yeah, well, that's such a great point. I, I had someone once that I was talking to and I've stole, like most of the things that are good ideas, I've stolen them from someone. And, and I use this a lot when I'm talking to groups about, you know, exactly what you said is if you close your eyes and you just imagine when, when one of your friends comes from out of town and says, hey, I'm going to be in Indianapolis or I'm going to be in DC. Could you recommend a good restaurant or recommend something? I want? No one says, oh yeah, you've got to try this place called Olive Garden. No, you know, everybody's exactly. saying over and over because that, that, they want to give them a business that's representative of this is the community. This is what DC or Indianapolis, what, what, what it's all about. And, and, and that's when you start thinking about, oh yeah, that's why we, we do want small businesses. They give yes. character to our community. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We had a, um, one of my stores turned hundred years old two years ago and we had so much fun. It was during the pandemic. So we had to do something very different than we planned. And we asked a local chocolate shop um, to name a chocolate after us and a brewery to name a beer after us and an ice cream oh. shop, a, a flavor of ice cream. And it wasn't because we wanted all of those things with our name on it. We wanted an excuse to talk about those businesses. So oh, for the yeah. entire year, we talked about the ice cream shop and the chocolate shop and like all of these places that were helping us celebrate. You know, we were really driving people to their business to buy something yeah. with Frager's name on it. Don't come into Frager's and support us. Go there and thank them for, you know, supporting a local business. And it's that kind of camaraderie that you don't get from the big box stores that makes our community so beautiful. Well, right. And it's that, you know, we always talk talk about too, if you're, you know, if you're gonna preach about why people should shop at your store and support your small business, and then you're going to Costco to buy your supplies or you're, you know, you need to think about how you do business and how you're helping the other small businesses in town. Yeah. So that's a good point. So yeah. for, for our listeners who might be saying, hey, I like these ideas. I like what she's done and I like what the team has done. What are some kind of practical tips that you might want to give to listeners who say, how can I kind of start something like that in my business? Are there organizations that they could reach out to? Or what, what, what would you kind of, where would you recommend that they start that kind of journey? Well, it's a really, it's a really big conversation, but I would say first think about, I would recommend that they take a look at their own culture and mm -hmm. how, oh, yeah. um, how, you know, diversity might be celebrated or not, you know, it might need to be included a little bit more, how conversations about things like someone in recovery are talked about in the office. Um, or on this, the, the store floor. Um, so, so first think about the, your overall culture. Is it something that, that is um, talked about in a positive light? Maybe it's not talked about at all. Maybe it's just, you know, the, the opioid ep epidemic, for example, has, has really devastated communities across our entire country, but a lot of people don't wanna talk about it because they're embarrassed or they're afraid or whatever. So are there opportunities to have conversations like that in your community? And this is just for the recovery community. I mean, you could be, working with the home, homeless population or veterans yeah. who do jobs. I mean, you don't have to just um, pick one particular group to work with. And then we have worked with some organizations over time, not exclusively, but, you know, organizations um, that help moms come back into the workforce. We've worked with an yeah. organization who work with women who are victims of domestic violence and they need jobs as much as anybody else. Um, I work with this great organization called Dog Tag, and I do educational programs for Dog Tag, but they work with veterans, and those veterans are always looking for jobs. Um, sure. So I would say, first, look at your own culture, examine where you yeah. think there might be opportunity or 
um, negativity. And then think about what your community has in terms of populations that might not be might not be getting jobs and see if there's there's something that you can do there. Fantastic advice. And let me ask you a question that I think a lot of our, our listeners might be thinking and, you know, it kind of goes into that, you know, might be thinking it, but afraid to mention it out loud. And, and, and that's like. Do you see, particularly with what you guys done, have have been, there been any inherent risks um, to hiring from this sector of the population that you've had to felt? But I, I also want to ask, in addition to that, have you had any criticism, kind of from customers or the local, uh, just the local population, about what you're doing? I mean, we could criticize anything these days, but but <laughs> right. but first the risks, and then and then maybe any potential opening yourselves to criticism. So I would say uh, the risks, no, but I've heard it all. I mean, I've heard every sure. argument. How do you trust that person? Why would you give them a key? How do you give them a job? And then I will, I will refer you all back to the story I told in the beginning about the college, 26-year-old right. college graduate who was like, you know, squeaky clean on paper. So I would say, let's not be hypocritical because we know that yeah. anybody can be anything, right? Um, and so that those, the, the inherent risk in retail is that we're going to be shoplifted you know, to 3% of our revenue and, you know, right. we're going to have employees steal from us from, from wherever. And then, um, I'm totally spacing on your second question. I apologize. <laughs> well, about, about criticism from the, have you received oh, criticism? No, from the I, I fact, it's the complete opposite. The, the, really? the, the amount of, there's a couple of things that we celebrate. We celebrate that we're a member of the ACE co-op. And so people are so excited when they find out that we're a co-op and not a franchise. We celebrate that we hire local folks um, from all walks of life. And people find that out and they love it. Everybody has a story of someone in their lives that's been touched by um, alcohol or drug, um, uh, active addiction, um, or something else. They they just do. They may not be willing to admit it, but they do. And and then we started selling our business to our, our team. So we are now an employee stock ownership uh, program. And we are now celebrating that and getting rave reviews from our customers because we can now say, I can now say I have 165 co-owners in this business. That's awesome. Really awesome. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah, that is really cool. So what does it mean to you, though, to look at, you know, kind of where your business started and how and kind of see how it's impacted the community that you serve today? Well, you know, sometimes I'm embarrassed when I think about stuff like this because we didn't change the communities, right? I mean, we opened a business and yeah. we provided jobs. And so I try not to make it sound like we've done too much. But I do think because we we were so excited to focus on urban areas, we've opened in places where other businesses haven't or wouldn't. And so that means a lot to me because we are in neighborhoods that love us because we're there. We were willing to open there. Um, we have the most beautiful store in Baltimore that is not in a, in a great neighborhood. I mean, it's, it's just to be honest, like it's really had some challenges and it's one of our busiest locations and the community loves us. My team that works there won't, I mean, they've been there for years because it has become a, a neighborhood staple. And so it means a lot to me to know that we're providing that kind of business in a community. Well, and that's, I got to say, that's so refreshing, Gina. And, and for, for, for risk of facing criticism myself, one of my kind of pet peeves is a term that developed in the last, you know, 10 years of job creator, as right. if a job creator is this different class of savior and, right. and, and it's the community and, and you're bringing a business and the, and the customers are creating jobs and you're the one that's kind of 
you know, acting as the facilitator for that. And I, I, I just love that kind of attitude that, that, that you have that, that kind of goes along with that. It's not, it's not that Gita's got a cape and a, and a golden halo that's, that's, no. that's creating all this opportunity. It's that you're, you're, you're kind of acting as a vessel more for, for this. Yes. No, that's it. You sort of, you, you, you open this, this blank slate and then you get to see what the community helps you create out of it. It's so true. I mean, it takes a village. It truly does. It's not, um, we wouldn't stay. I mean, we closed a store a couple of weeks ago, so we can certainly yeah. talk about what happens when there isn't enough support from the community sure. or, you know, something doesn't work. And so it, it, it takes all of us. Absolutely. Well, so we've talked a lot about this, but your book is coming out here in a couple of weeks, uh, coming out September 1st. So if you're listening to this podcast from the library and it's past September 1st, you can get Gina's book now. Yes. <laughs> um, but September is also yeah. National Recovery Month. Was that kind of a planned thing or is that just kind of a, a, an interesting coincidence? Can I call it a happy accident? Um, yeah, okay. You know, when, <laughs> I'm, I'm working with a, a, a woman-owned self-publishing company out of um, Las Vegas, LA and Las Vegas. And she, they have some research that shows that publishing books in summer is not a really great idea. Like they just, okay. you know, people are on vacation. We all know this in retail. So um, she said, I think we should probably wait until the fall. And then we were researching ways to support it or talk about it. So, you know, October is National um, Cooperative Month and Employee Ownership oh. Month. And so when we put together the calendar of all these things, oh, lo and behold, September happens to be National Recovery Month. And so um, I'm, it, it wasn't going to be ready prior to that. It's a lot of work that goes into getting a book yeah. um, out to sell. And so it, it lined up perfectly once we figured that out. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, and I know we didn't ask and we're kind of towards the end of our conversation and we didn't really ask you many questions about the book writing process, but I, it just came to mind. How, how was that process and what was it like shifting gears from, you know, running a hardware operation to saying, okay, I got to sit down and write this book and ham <laughs> yeah. hammer out a chapter. Like, what was that experience like? Can you give us a, just a little, uh, from from the look on your face, it was the most uh, non-stressful, but maybe just tell us a little bit about that. My husband said, he's our CFO, he's amazing. And he said, will you write your next book about being the husband, putting up with a wife, writing a book? <laughs> 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 uh, it was two and a half years. I wrote the first draft in January of 2020. Um, and anyone who's written anything will tell you that, you know, the first 25 drafts are awful. Um, the problem though, is when you sort of, you know, you let, you let these emotions out and you, and you write about them. Um, you feel like the first draft is perfect and you've captured it just like that. And then some savvy editor has to tell you that it sucks and you have to start over. <laughs> um, it's also, uh, it's also because it's technically a memoir, nonfiction, uh, memoir, you have to really write about yourself. And I'm so used to talking about the business and my team that the first, you know, 10 rounds, actually, my editor would call me and she'd say, I've written a big red F on your manuscript because you're not in here. How did this make oh, you, feel? Yeah. you know, go back to that exercise of closing your eyes? I wasn't using my senses in order to explain the, the book. And so hopefully that hopefully those things will come out in the reading. Awesome. So how can people, where and how can they get a copy of your book once it's available on September 1st? Or could they pre-order, I guess? Yeah, so the pre-order link, I'm hoping will go live at the beginning of next week. We had a, um, we have a few things that we have to change. Um, I am not selling this book on Amazon, which doesn't necessarily mean that it will not get uploaded to Amazon, which is a topic right. for a whole other conversation that's giving me heartburn. Um, but the link will go to um, independent ebook. Um, 
sellers and independent booksellers. So that can be found, uh, will be found at recoveryhardware.com. And then I will also be posting it on social media and and send it to you and all over the place so that people can see it. Is there there anything else before we, and again, thank you so much. What a refreshing topic and, 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 and again, this is the kind of thing that makes you feel good about supporting small businesses. So thank you so much thank for you. coming on our program and, and talking to us. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we draw to a close here? Well, one, I just want to thank you guys for being open to having conversations like this, because I know yeah. they're, they're heady topics and I sort of make light of it when I talk about it, because I don't want people to think that it's, it needs to be, you know, super serious. But for the listeners, I think, you know, there's so many great and I wish I could list them all, but there's so many great businesses around the country that I've now learned do what we do. Um, and so yeah. a lot of people don't know those businesses in their community or they do know those businesses and they, you know, they can go find them and support them um, and talk about them as much as they can. So I would say even if you're not specifically doing something in your own business, find someone in your community who is and help celebrate them. Fantastic advice. And and thank you again for being on the program, Gina. And and we'll definitely we will definitely through our media opportunities push out a, a, the link to where people can buy your book thank because you. it, if it, it should be standard reading for all small business owners, but particularly the people in the hardware industry who already are are some of the best at trying to help their communities Absolutely. and going above and beyond. This industry is truly leading the way when it comes to things like this. And what a great example you're setting for everybody. So I appreciate all your work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. If you or someone you know is facing mental health and or substance use disorders, please use the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration National Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. This is a confidential 24 hour a day, 365 day a year helpline available in both English and Spanish. 